and welcome to City Breaks London episode 24, Shops and Markets. I'm Marion Jones and I'm looking forward to taking you today on a wander around the whole of the city, looking out for all the very many different sorts of places where you can spend your money in London. We'll be covering some of the very famous shops that everybody's heard of. We'll have a little poke around some of the best bookshops tour some of the very, very different shopping areas all over the city, from the exclusive like Knightsbridge to the quirky Think Brick Lane and Carnaby Street, not forgetting, of course, everything in between, I don't know, Covent Garden and whatnot. Going to take in a number of London's best-known markets, not forgetting, of course, the all-important food markets, and do a little tour of some arcades and shopping centres, everything from one opened in the 16th century to one that I saw described as the newest kid on the block in shopping terms in London. So, plenty for everyone. Whether you've got lots to spend and want to take home some souvenirs, or whether you just see looking around some of the shopping areas in the city as a different activity from museum visiting, taking in some current culture, if you like. OK, so where to start? London's definitely known for its exclusive shops, isn't it? Those ones that go back a century or more. Think Harrods and Harvey Nichols in Knightsbridge, Selfridges and John Lewis in Oxford Street, Liberty in Regent Street, Fortman Mason, all of those. Would it be fair to say perhaps that Harrods is the most famous of the lot? Harrods, which opened in the 19th century, wasn't put off when it was burnt down in 1883, simply built back bigger, installed the world's first escalator, that was in 1898. Actually, that turned out to be another obstacle which had to be overcome because customers was too scared to use it to start with, and Harrods staff had to convince them by giving away free brandy. But today, it's one of those shop fronts that just says London, the world over. Famous perhaps particularly because it was owned for 20 years or so by the Egyptian magnate, Mohammed Al-Fayed. Hence the not one but two memorials to Princess Diana in the shop itself, and famous too for its extravagant decoration throughout the shop. Statues, fountains... 90,000 square metres of sales space spread over five floors. A slogan which reads, everything for everyone, everywhere, but known to be one of the world's most exclusive department stores. Perhaps you'll just pop in to look round at an activity. Maybe you really would like to buy something, and you can, of course, buy something very small. A little box of tea, perhaps, or a couple of very extravagant chocolates. You can still collect one of those carrier bags, which is perhaps at least as much of a souvenir as whatever it is that you buy. I came across the material about the opening of Selfridges in March 1909, which really does give a flavour of what these new expensive exclusive shops meant to London. It's from a book called Selfridges by Gordon Honeycomb, and in the opening chapter he begins by telling us how fascinated the people of London were about this new shop that was coming their way. Not least because the building itself was so fancy that it was hard to believe it was actually a shop. A building, as Gordon Honeycomb describes, whose ionic columns and classic facade, adorned with garlands of evergreen and gold ribbons, and decked with flags, loomed over the colourless, hatted and coated crowd. Huge newspaper adverts were taken out before it opened, invitations were sent to thousands of people to attend the opening, and they came along in droves to find that there were eight floors, three below street level, and a hundred different departments, all sorts of shop counters, of course, but also, quote, a library and silence room, a first aid ward, 
a bureau de change, a bureau of information, railway, steamship and theatre booking offices, a post office, a savings bank, a luncheon hall, a tea garden open to the sky. The like had never been seen. On the actual day of the opening, at 9am sharp, a military bugler stepped out onto a first floor balcony and blew a fanfare. The silk curtains, concealing 21 different window displays, were lifted with a flourish. A flag was unfurled on the roof, and the doors opened. The people, writes Mr Honeycomb, cheered and surged forward past uniformed commissaire. There were in fact over a thousand shop assistants waiting to serve them, standing behind mahogany counters. The men wearing stiff collars and sober suits, the women in long black dresses. And it was obvious right from the start how much effort had gone into making the store look absolutely glorious. Masses of flowers and greenery everywhere, lots of flags, strings of crystal beads hanging from the ceilings. Not one but several string quartets had been engaged to play classical music. I think it would be fair to say that anybody who was there that day never forgot it. Various slogans had been used in the advertising campaign. For example, comforts, luxuries and conveniences on every side. And another one explaining that this was to be, quote, an exhibition, a city in itself, an institution for purposes of commerce. You would be able to find inside, quote, everything that men, women and children wear and most things that are used in daily life, provisions, wine, etc., accepted. That's not a very 21st century slogan, is it? A bit too long and wordy, I think. When the shop opened, they were claiming that they were offering London's lowest prices. This turned out to be not totally true, and they had to withdraw that claim. But another of their slogans, people did accept. It was one which summed up the idea that it was worth paying a little extra to get some excellent quality. Selfridges put it like this. The recollection of quality remains long after the price is forgotten. So much then for London's huge department stores. Let's turn our attention to bookshops, for which London is also rightly famed. A lot of them are clustered around the Charing Cross Road. You probably know that from the film of the same name. And the Bloomsbury area, that being the centre of London University and the British Museum, etc. The biggest general bookshop, once the biggest bookshop in the world, in fact, is Foyles in Charing Cross Road, founded in 1903 and also innovative in its own way. In the 1930s, for example, began the Foyles Literary Luncheons, where you could go along, have lunch and meet the author of a particular work. As the decades passed, Foyles became quite an institution. I remember it in the 1970s when it was very ramshackle, full of nooks and crannies, quite a lot of dust, very possibly some mice. And it turns out I'm not the only person who remembers this. In London by Tube, the author Christopher Wynne also recalls, quote, a uniquely antiquated shopping experience, with shelves full of books categorised by publisher rather than author, old-fashioned hand-operated tills, and a payment system that forced customers to queue three times. It was so bizarre that Foyles became a tourist attraction in its own right. I suppose it's a good thing that today it's just a big, modern bookshop with several floors of all the books you can imagine, and very helpful staff, but I can't help feeling that a little something has been lost. The oldest bookshop in the United Kingdom is in fact Hatchards in Piccadilly, established in 1797, and which is today the official bookseller to the Royal Household. 
Christopher Wynne writes about that too. Quote, Hatchards conforms to almost everyone's idea of what a bookshop should be. Five floors of wooden bookshelves, creaking staircases, deep pile carpets, books in every nook and cranny, comfortable chairs, knowledgeable staff and an air of blissful peace. In fact, their connection with royalty goes back centuries. It's known, for example, that Queen Charlotte, wife of George III, used to shop there, as did the Duke of Wellington, Lord Byron, Gladstone, Disraeli, Oscar Wilde, Kipling. I dare say you might run into a celeb or two even today. Another bookshop definitely worth visiting is the London Review Bookshop, in Bloomsbury, just along from the British Museum, a shop which takes reading very seriously. I did enjoy the explanation on their website of how it is they choose their stock. This is what they say. Not all books are good. Not all books are new. From which it follows that not all new books are good. And not all good books are new. Here we recommend books grouped around an eccentric and largely random collection of themes. Some of them are new. Some of them aren't. All of them, we think, are good. So there you are. Decide if that's your sort of bookshop. And please note too that so seriously do they take reading that they publish the London Review of Books, a magazine, a literary review if you will, which will help you keep up with what's being published and whether it's any good or not. And actually they're also famous for their bijou cake shop where, quote, everything we bake is handmade with love. And on the website they certainly have some very droolsome photographs. So many specialist bookshops in London, where to start? I would like to just mention one of particular interest, perhaps, for people who like a travel podcast, and that's Stanford's Bookshop in Covent Garden, the world's biggest and best map and travel bookshop. If it's maps or atlases or a globe or a travel guide that you wish to find, Stanford's is where you need to go. And I found it reassuring to read that they have supplied cartography to the British Army and the James Bond films. Oh, and their cafe does a cracking hot chocolate. I know that they have been crowdfunding to get through Covid, so if you're somebody who'd like to keep a really good map and travel bookshop in London, do use them if you possibly can. And just finally, before we leave bookshops, I have to mention the Notting Hill bookshop. Yes, that one from the film, easily found just off the Portobello Road. It too used to specialise in travel, but it's much broader now, particularly good children's range. Popular with, as it says on the website, Thousands of fans from all over the world because of its appearance in the Notting Hill film. And if you want to tell the world that you've been, you can always buy one of their natural jute shopper bags with a picture of the shop emblazoned on it. So, turning to areas of London which are well known for shopping, let's have a run through. Starting perhaps with some of the poshies, Knightsbridge, Sloane Street, Mayfair, etc. So, in Knightsbridge you will find Harrods, already mentioned, and Harvey Nichols, affectionately known as Harvey Nicks in the television series, absolutely fabulous. Nearby is Sloane Street, again full of prestigious brands, think Dolce & Gabbana, Hermes, etc. Then what about Mayfair and Bond Street, equally famed for luxury retail, places where you can do a bit of celeb spotting too? I found a quote on the Lady in London website describing Mayfair as follows. Mayfair is synonymous with luxury. Hotels, shops, tailors and purveyors of the finer things in life aspire to new levels of hedonism here. Everything is immaculate, from the streets to the gardens and squares. So then a reminder that this is a very nice area of London, 
bordered by Green Park and Hyde Park, the bit where you will find Barclay Square, where the Nightingale sang, and Grosvenor Square, and some very exclusive shops like the flagship store for Tiffany's, for example, or Burberry, who make those very English raincoats, Louis Vuitton, etc. And don't, whatever you do, miss German Street, J-E-R-M-Y-N. That's got Fortnum and Masons in it, but it's also got some of the most incredible shops you'll see anywhere. They seem to specialise in gentlemen's outfitters, as I believe men's clothes shops are called in that neck of the woods. They have wonderful names and they do amazing things. There is Turnbull and Asser, for example, shirt makers, we are told, to Churchill, James Bond and the Prince of Wales. There is also John Lobb, Britain's oldest bootmaker, a self-made man who, in 1866, got the bright idea of sending a pair of his boots to the Prince of Wales. He'd had the initiative to get the Prince's exact foot measurements first, and so when they arrived, Prince Edward was thrilled with them, and a royal warrant was issued. Every pair of shoes is individually crafted, using a wooden last fashioned to the exact shape of that particular customer's feet. They have apparently got lasts in there belonging to Queen Victoria, to Frank Sinatra, and to Prince Charles. If you are off boating in Henley any time and don't have one of those exclusive stripy blazers, then you will find Benson and Cleggs in German Street, who will be able to help you out. Savile Row is quite nearby, where you can get tailor-made suits. You will need at least three fittings, apparently, but we are told that they have attractive dressing rooms and that drinks are often included. And the end result will be a suit which fits you perfectly. I enjoyed much of the wording on their website. Here, for example, they are describing their monogram service. We can monogram men's shirts, silk ties, dressing gowns, chinos and pyjamas with up to four initials. Is it only me that thinks that has a kind of matron at boarding school sort of flavour to it? Even better, the following. Fortune favours the brave and adventurous. Bright thread colours will elevate a white shirt to designer status. Truly a sentence to savour. But maybe you are thinking that you won't be shopping in some of these very exclusive emporia. So let's come down market a little bit to other well-known streets in London. Oxford Street, for example, which was just a muddy field in the Middle Ages, something you pass through on your way out of the city and into the country. But by 1786, it had become a shopping street and quite an exclusive one. I know this because I read about it in a letter written in 1786 by a foreign visitor. She sounds a mix of French and German with a name like Sophie von La Roche. But she was very excited about Oxford Street. It took her half an hour to get from one end to the other, she said, in a letter written home to her children, in which she described the double rows of brightly shining lamps, in the middle of which stands an equally long row of beautifully lacquered coaches, and on either side of these there is room for two coaches to pass one another, and the pavement inlaid with flagstones can stand six people deep, and allows one to gaze at the splendidly lit shop fronts in comfort. Sophie, of course, was used to mud on the shopping streets, so she found the idea of a pavement where you could keep clean and dry very handy. She goes on to describe some of the shops she saw. A watchmaker's, a silk store, a silversmith's, a china and glass shop. She was particularly intaken with the spirit booths, for, as she put it, the English are fond of a strong drink. And in those, she explained, there were crystal flasks of every shape and form all lit up from behind so that the different coloured spirits would sparkle. 
And then she goes on to write, just as alluring are the confectioners and fruiterers, where, behind the handsome glass windows, pyramids of pineapples, figs, grapes, oranges and all manner of fruits are on show. Oxford Street today is the busiest shopping street in Europe, a place described on the Visit London website as somewhere to, quote, admire people going back and forth, supporting capitalism. Regent Street crosses over with Oxford Street, definitely a little bit upmarket, I would say. When Charles Dickens was writing, it was London's most exclusive shopping street. The architecture was elegant, the street was wide enough for coaches and horses to drive through comfortably, and again, the newish glass in the windows meant that wonderful displays could be set up for the public to admire, turning shopping not just into something you had to do to get what you needed, but into a leisure activity. On Regent Street today, you'll still find an elegant mix of shops, a couple of the famous ones being Hamley's, the famous toy shop, and Liberty, where you can buy Liberty prints and things made with them. There's also a ginormous apple store. Then there's Covent Garden, one of the best shopping areas in the West End. Classy, really, surrounded by the Royal Opera House and Drury Lane Theatre, where you'll find some very upmarket buskers, music students, for example, lots of impromptu performances, all sorts of foodie outlets. Again, things that turn shopping into an experience rather than a chore. Covent Garden has a main piazza, but there are lots of little courtyards and quirky streets off it, so do have a wander round. Look out perhaps for Neil's Yard. Colourful houses, lots of vibrant little cafes, a shop called Neil's Yard Remedies, which is quite a London institution, selling, quote, the UK's largest range of certified organic health and beauty products. Look out too for Broadcourt, a little lane just by the Royal Opera House, where you can take a nice photo of yourself in front of a ballerina sculpture with a row of red phone boxes in the background. Quirkier shopping areas in London include Carnaby Street, or the capital of cool as I've seen it described. An area of Soho, popular early on in the 19th century with the sort of bohemian types who cluster around theatres and galleries, and which became more connected with fashion from about the 1950s onwards, beginning with the arrival of the first shops in Britain which specialised in selling clothes for gay men, closely followed in the early 60s by Mary Quant, whose miniskirts sold here in quantities, all of which meant that Carnaby Street had become the centre of swinging London. These days it's pedestrianised, still a centre for alternative glamour. Another name that always resonates abroad is the King's Road in Chelsea, named because it was originally Private Road for King Charles II to drive along on his way out to Kew. It became the centre of British fashion in the late 60s, early 70s, the place where punk began, a place where at number 430, still a photo stop for lots of visitors by the way, a shop was owned by Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren. King's Road today I've seen described as a good place to people watch and dog watch and ask yourself how many of the dogs look really quite like their owners. Still a place with lots of clothes shops. You'll find Zara, you'll find slightly less common ones like Bimba y Lola, Spanish I believe, and Comptoir de Coutonnier. But it's also got a bit of an arty vibe. The Designers Guild flagship store is there, for example, as is the Saatchi Gallery, a good place to immerse yourself in contemporary art and culture. And don't miss the cake shop, Peggy Portion. It's quite hard to miss, in fact. The whole building is painted in a sugary pink colour, flowers everywhere, 
and when you get inside, which you may have to queue to do, so popular is it, you will find cakes to match that decor, a shop for which the phrase pretty in pink must surely have been first coined. You can indulge there, you can buy things to take away, a good place to go if you want to buy someone else a cake, or as they put it, gift the joy of cake, or indeed buy party decorations, recipe books and what not. Another place like no other is Brick Lane, part of the old East End, an area that's been a Jewish quarter, has been known more recently as Banglatown because of its huge connection with populations from Bangladesh and other Asian countries, but which today is just full, full, full of street art, food markets, vintage shops, think clothing, record shoes, etc., bookshops, bars, music venues, pop-ups. Amazing place to go any day of the week, but particularly on a Sunday when the whole road fills with food and crafts and bric-a-brac and all sorts. Not to mention the many, many food stalls where you can enjoy dishes from all around the world. Talking of markets, perhaps the two best-known ones in London are Camden Market and Portobello Road, so let's have a quick look at those. Camden Market launched in the 1970s with, I believe, 16 stalls to specialise in locally produced arts and crafts. But it's grown and grown, and today it is said that up to 100,000 visitors come in a weekend to enjoy all that it has to offer. I went looking for some descriptions of it and found things like, there's a wide variety of merchandise, overwhelming. Here you'll find new and used clothing, antiques, jewellery, candles, and all kinds of junk. Another description makes it sound slightly classier than that. Camden Lock Market mixes souvenirs with handcrafted jewellery and vintage leather items. The main part is the bit along the Regent's Canal, known as Camden Lock Village. And there, in addition to an eclectic mix of stalls, you will find several classic British pubs on the waterfront. There's another area known as Stables Market, 450 shops up there, along Chalk Farm Road if you're looking for it, and a massive selection of food and drink stalls. One which caught my eye, I'm not actually sure if it's still there or not, but it gives a flavour either way, is called Shaka Zulu, and is a place where you can, quote, sample exotic meats such as crocodile, zebra and buffalo in a unique ornamental dining space. Up in Notting Hill you will find Portobello Road Market, the world's largest antiques market, over a thousand dealers. It's several centuries old too, was originally a food market, but round about the middle of the 20th century it began to attract rag and bone men. They brought the bric-a-brac they'd collected from houses here to try and sell it, Sometimes antiques were found, and gradually it was in these that they began to specialise. Today it's several markets in one, really. I've seen it described as a mile of hustle, haggle, colour and energy. Portobello Road itself is quite picturesque. Colourful houses, coffee shops, independent bookshops, etc. And if you go on Saturday particularly, you will find that not only are the antique and specialist shops open, there are also lots more stalls set up in the street. It's one of those markets that starts quite early, best times to go, 8.30 to 11am. Lots of different sections, the antiques and bric-a-bac part is near the tube station. In other areas you'll find fruit and veg and food in general, including some specialist baked goods, oils, gourmet cheese, etc. There's a new goods section, selling, I am told, quote, cheap socks, toys and batteries. So if that's what you need, you'll find it there. There's a fashion section, a second-hand goods section, and lots and lots of street food options. 
Again, stuff from all around the world, curry, paella, fish and chips, bratwurst. So those are the two main markets. A quick mention for two other smaller ones, the Columbia Road Flower Market. Very atmospheric and colourful, even if you're not intending to buy flowers. Probably not if you're on holiday, but lovely for a visit and actually surrounded by lots of independent shops selling jewellery, vintage clothes, cupcakes, all sorts. So a nice morning out. Sundays only, 8am to 2 or 3 o'clock. And finally then, Spitalfields Market, which is walking distance from Liverpool Street Station, began life in the 17th century, but today it's one of those big old covered markets in a Victorian building. Here you will find art and gifts and antiques. It's a place where new young designers often start, and there are plenty of cafes and tea rooms and street food vans. So again, an interesting morning out, whether you want to buy anything or not. Talking of markets, it's definitely worth pointing out the food markets in London, particularly the best known of the whole lot, Borough Market, just south of the river, near London Bridge Tube Station, somewhere it'd be handy to pop into, for example, if you're off to see the Globe or to Southwark Cathedral, and described as, quote, one of the city's most beloved foodie meccas. It's tucked away under the railway bridges, so it's better if you know it's there, really. But that makes it quite exciting to wander around and explore. And you will find dozens and dozens of traders hoping to sell you ingredients to take away if you're cooking something special or lots of food to go. I think there are about 150 in total. So just to give you a flavour, if you want to buy some food to take home, you could choose from charcuterie from the South Tyrol, specialities from Emilia-Romagna, French patisserie, Russian breads, Scottish smoked fish products, and on and on. If what you're looking for is more some food to take away, eat there and then, then again, a massive choice. Some examples. Gourmet Goat will sell you Cypriot street food. Gujarati Rasoi will offer you vegetarian specialities. You can get Singapore street food from May May. And a company called Scotch Tales offer you, quote, the humble Scotch egg lovingly reinvented. I'm sure you could eat there every day for a year and never have the same thing twice. And just a quick mention for another food market that's easy to find, South Bank Centre, somewhere you are surely quite likely to be passing. It's only open, I think, on Friday, Saturday and Sundays, but there again you'll find a massive range. Crepe and galette, barbecues, burgers and seafood, lots of Asian street food from Korea, Japan, Thailand curries from Mauritius and the Punjab, a Polish deli, lots of Mediterranean food, Ethiopian coffee, cocktails from a company called Elephant Juice. Equally suitable if you know what you like, or if you really want to try something you've never heard of. And moving on, you may remember if you've listened to the Paris series that shopping in Paris offered a very particular treat known as the arcades, those covered arcades built largely in the 19th century and full of all sorts of little shops that you don't find anywhere else. Are there any of those in London? I can hear you wondering. And the answer is yes, certainly. There is, for example, the Burlington Arcade. And the story of how that came into being is one to savour. Here's what it says on their website. True love took on a new meaning when Lord George Cavendish, Earl of Burlington, commissioned Samuel Ware to build Burlington Arcade as a safe place for his wife and other genteel folk to shop. Isn't that romantic? There were people who thought that the Earl had a double motive, actually. People were throwing oyster shells into his garden, oysters being the popular fast food in the early 1800s. 
and his solution to this annoying problem was to build an arcade on the land and keep out the riffraff. Genteel folk could shop there, other people could take their oyster shells somewhere else. So it opened in 1819 for, as it was said at the time, the sale of jewellery and fancy articles of fashionable demand for the gratification of the public. There were about 50 little shops inside, selling luxuries like hats and gloves and jewellery. It was apparently the place to go if you needed a new bonnet. And that very exclusive flavour is retained even today. It's described, in fact, as the jewel in Mayfair. Inside, you'll find quite a quirky mix of prestigious jewellery companies, top-notch watches, handmade leather goods, high-end perfumes... As an example, I enjoyed reading that the Vintage Watch Company, which is in there, has, quote, the largest collection of pre-owned Rolex watches in the world. It's unique in a number of ways. It offers, for example, a specialist shoeshine service. And then there are the Beadles. So these date right back to 1819 when it opened. Lord Cavendish, as already mentioned, was quite keen that not everybody should be allowed into this exclusive arcade. And so he turned to his regiment, the 10th Hussars, to recruit some guards to stand at either end and watch what was going on. They became known as the Beadles. They are still there today. They are apparently the oldest and smallest police force in Britain. And you'll be pleased to know that they still wear Regency-inspired uniforms. They are still there to impose the rules laid down and to make sure that no customers indulge in any of the things which are banned. For example whistling, running, riding a bicycle, behaving boisterously. If you want to do any of those things, you're going to have to shop somewhere else. The Burlington Arcade is helpfully situated near the Royal Academy and across the road from Fortnum and Masons. So if you're in the area, I definitely recommend that you pop in. It is really quite an experience. Leadenhall Market is another, actually even much older, arcade or covered shopping area dates back originally to the 14th century, when I think it was more of an ordinary market. In the 15th century, one Dick Whittington decided to have a stone marketplace built there when he was Lord Mayor of London. So well built was it that it survived the fire of London, and by the 19th century, it was a big, noisy Victorian market, somewhere where, for example, we know that Charles Dickens occasionally did a little shopping. These days, it's still there in the Victorian building. An airy, light, wrought iron and glass structure, built in 1881, with cobbled walkways inside. It's right in the centre of London's financial district, and you can still see its origins. So, left over from the days when it was a meat and game market, you can see wrought iron hooks on the shop fronts, which is where the produce used to be hung. These days it's got lots of shops, some of them quite upmarket, but also some very ordinary ones, Waterstones, Pizza Express, that sort of thing. There are cafes, there are wine bars. Definitely a place worth popping into. Also in the city, there's the Royal Exchange, also with illustrious roots, founded in the 16th century and opened by, wait for it, Elizabeth I. That one burnt down, unfortunately, and the second one, put up to replace it, also burnt down. So the third one was opened in 1844 by Queen Victoria. If you go inside, you'll find a central courtyard, shops on all four sides, rather upmarket in design, pediment sculptures, ornamental ironwork, that sort of thing. On its own website, it tells us that it has been offering, quote, heritage, style and excellence at the heart of the city since 1571. 
Inside, you'll find some high-end shops, Fortman Mason, Leica, Tiffany's, etc. And some very exclusive dining experiences. You can buy some La Durée macaroons in there, for example. Or you could go to the all-day dining option known as Fortnum's Bar and Restaurant. There's a full expensive menu on offer there. If you want to just sample something and not spend too, too much, for £18.50, you could have something from their oysters and champagne collection. The smallest one is three oysters and a glass of Fortnum's Blanc de Blanc Grand Cru. So if you want to live it up, there you go. Also in the city, a very new large shopping centre known as One New Change. It actually mixes shopping space and office space. Hasn't really got the history of the Royal Exchange. In fact, it's very much a futurist style. But the exclusivity angle is still covered. You can find inside, for example, jewellery from Swarovski. Various cafes run by well-known chefs. And all of this overlooking St Paul's Cathedral. And while I'm on the subject of very new shopping destinations, one that I've seen described on, I think it was the Visit London website, as the new kid on the block, is called Coal Drops Yard and is described as a shopping destination and foodie hotspot five minutes from King's Cross. The rather esoteric name comes from the fact that it was an old coal yard in Victorian times and it left the flavour of that in the design, but it's a place full of up-to-the-minute shopping and entertainment options. On their website, there's an article written by the journalist Catherine Ormerod, which does a good job of giving the flavour. So, Things she enjoyed when she spent a day there were the colourful pyramid meeting point, a huge psychedelic edifice, which you can't possibly miss, and which is therefore a good place to arrange to meet someone. There are fountains there, which they're very happy for children to run around and play in. Her advice is bring them some dry clothes. And then some of the shops she visited give you the flavour. So, for example, Boutique by Shelter, where you can buy second-hand designer pieces, and yes, Some of the profits do go to the housing charity. There's an unusual sounding bookshop called Word on the Water, which is in a barge anchored on the canal. There's a year-round programme of exhibitions. There are open spaces such as Granary Square with benches dotted about. There's an open-air cinema, the screen apparently being on the canal. And something which I found encapsulates the atmosphere quite well is a mention of some of the food items that you can get at the Coal Office restaurant. There you can enjoy, quote, truffle asparagus polenta and black tahini ice cream. And just before I finish, can I mention the place where I think most ordinary Londoners do most of their ordinary shopping, and that is Westfield, two major shopping centres, one at White City and one at Stratford, 250 shops in each, more than 80 places to eat. They're some of Europe's largest shopping malls, full of high street favourites, think Marks and Spencers, etc., and luxury brands. Yes, you'll find Louis Vuitton and Jimmy Choo. So hopefully shopping options for everyone. And actually, that surely is a phrase which sums up shopping in London. Whether you want to browse or buy, whether you're seeking the unique or the ordinary, the quirky or the exclusive, you will surely find it somewhere in London. And I hope that this episode will have helped you to sort out what's what and what's where. That then brings this episode to a close. We're nearing the end of the London series now. I'm planning a couple of anthology episodes and a bucket list episode. Not entirely sure which one will be next week yet, but do listen in and find out. For the meantime then, thank you very much for listening today and goodbye. Goodbye.